0: Today's episode is brought to us by CS Instant Coffee, the best coffee for any adventure you're going to go on. Use the code ADVENTURE at CSInstant.coffee and get 50% off through September and October. So give it a shot. And we're also brought to you by Rome Products. They make elastic knit, minimalist style wallets with all sorts of designs. Get twenty percent off the perfect minimalist wallet for all your adventures. It'll hold everything you need by going to where do you roam r o a m dot com and use the code podcast with a capital P at checkout.
1: And the the earth just kind of came out from under me, just a slab avalanche. It was getting warmer out. And I just remember I I was falling, and I remember that initial just falling feeling, and I grabbed the rope so fast and so tight, it burned a a line right through my glove.
0: This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, trying to help you find adventure every day, in any stage of life. You're going to hear from explorers, adventurers, business owners, and anyone living their life a little more out of the box than usual. Have you ever been in one of those moments where you're, you thought you might not ever see your loved ones again? Well, today we're talking to someone who felt that. Um, for a lot of us, it's not at the top of Mount Everest, uh, but for Brian, it was. I have been in moments myself where I felt that I, I might not make it out of this. A lot of them are vin- adventure related, but honestly, a lot of them, you know, vehicle related, traffic related. It doesn't have to be the top of Everest to feel this way. So, just imagine that feeling times, however much, when you're so isolated up there and you know that there's such such a slight chance for mistakes and for error. So enjoy this. Uh, I'm glad Brian made it out. He has written a book about it. Link for that is in the show notes. I encourage you to check it out and enjoy this epic tale of blind descent.
2: Welcome back to another episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is Travis. So imagine the incredible effort it takes to reach the summit of Mount Everest at 29,035 feet. Now, imagine accomplishing your goal only to lose your sight once you've reached the top. This is what happened to Brian Dickinson on May fifteenth, two 2011. He's with me today to fill us in on how this all came about. Brian, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, good to have you so let's dig into your your background a little bit and talk about uh how it is you ended up being uh, becoming a climber
1: um i don't know i think it was just kind of the the evolution of who i am you know i grew up in southern oregon so there's mountains there um but didn't really get into serious climbing until uh, i guess uh, in the early 2000s cuz i was down in san diego living down there i was stationed in the navy so I was jumping out of helicopters, you know, as an air rescue swimmer. So I think I've always been wired a little differently, a little adventurous. Um but it wasn't until I moved up to the Pacific Northwest after getting out of the Navy, uh, my wife and I moved up for grad school and just really started climbing in the the Cascade Range out here and you know, we got Mount Rainier and a bunch of volcanoes that are highly glaciated and just really start up in my game and one thing led to the other and I decided I was going to climb the highest peaks on the seven continents.
2: <laughs> so the seven summits. We'll get into that in a little bit. Um, so you started out just kind of recreational climbing, but obviously one doesn't go from day hikes up the side of a, a hill to climbing Everest. What were the steps that you took to finally get to that point where you wanted to to take on the challenge of something like the seven summits?
1: Um, I think I've always just kind of put goals out there to to really challenge myself. And, um, I think when you, when you actually, I don't know, as a climber, you know, the seven summits, it's, it's a huge thing and it's not something that you're going to do overnight. So when you actually uh, consider doing it, I don't know, I think there's a lot of, you know, just, uh, being naive early on, just, you know, realizing Everest is out there, but you're going to lead up to it and just build that experience over time. And it. I think you, you said it right. I mean, it's, it's a lot of steps getting there, like literally, but it just takes a lot of experience in training. And as soon as I, you know, wrote that goal down, I mean, I, I took it serious and I just, I started taking the, the professional mountaineering courses and going up to Denali and, you know, really hitting some of these really tough peaks and just ensuring that, that I could do Everest. And for me, I wasn't going to, you know, go the, the guided route, you know, I went independent. So I wanted to, to be sure that I was, you know, guiding on other peaks and feeling very comfortable and just, you know, capable of, you know, maintaining life up there, no matter, you know, what the situation and really just training for the things that were within my control and, you know, planning for the things that are outside of my control.
2: Right, right. So you said your wife climbed with you at the, at the same time when you started out?
1: Um, no, she's, she's not a climber. Like she's, she's went to Russia and went up to like base camp on Elbrus with me. And she and my kids have climbed the highest peak in Australia. But, uh, my wife, she didn't do like, uh, anything too major. You know, she's scared of heights and we're, we're completely (laughs) opposite.
2: Okay. Well, I was wondering, I asked that because I was wondering if she had that, that frame of uh, reference to relate to what it is you went through up on Everest, which obviously we'll talk about in a little bit, but I wondered if she could kind of put that in perspective from her experiences, but it sounds like she's not gotten to, to that point herself. No,
1: no, far, far removed for sure. So the
2: question, why climb? Why do you do it? Obviously it's inherently dangerous on, on these higher peaks that we're talking about. Um what's the what's the draw to it?
1: Um I think for, for each climber and you know, people that don't climb, I mean just whatever you do in life, I think you, you just answer things a little differently based on the person that you are. And for me it's it's definitely evolved over time. Um, you know, it, it's a huge challenge. It's physically demanding, which I really enjoy. I love really pushing myself uh, beyond my perceived limits so I can see, you know, how far I can go. And to me, that's that's truly living. I mean, it's you you can just kind of float through life. But I think that's for me, I think that's a waste. I think there's just so much to experience in life that if you're not challenging yourself often, then, you know, every day is just a waste. And, um, honestly just getting away from the craziness that exists at sea level, just there's so much just clutter that occurs down here. (laughs) You know, it's just, to me, it's just so amazing to just get, get away from that. Like I just got back from the Waddington range up in British Columbia. It's the highest peak in British Columbia where I was filming a movie series up there and, um, you know, a, a reenactment of, of my Everest situation. And we are just immersed in it. And it's very Himalaya looking and there wasn't anyone else for, you know, hundreds of miles. And it was just, it's, it's so amazing just to, to be there and to be away from everything else, just to gain that perspective. So when, you know, I come back and the film crew and everyone comes back to, to sea level, you know, you just have that perspective and you can just kind of like look at things a little differently. And then after time, you know, it just, you get, you know, reacclimated to, to craziness down here and you got to kind of get away to, to filter it out again.
2: Yeah. I'm sure it feels, uh, it feels to you like you're back at home when you're up in those mountain ranges.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Yep. So the seven summits, let's go into that a little bit. Um, you want to do, um, for lack of a better term, bag the seven summits. I mean, we use that, you know, in Colorado for, uh, for bagging 14 it, it seems a little too light of a term when it comes to, uh, the highest peaks on each continent, but, <laughs> um, go ahead and explain to our listeners what the seven summits is and what it is that made you want to conquer that.
1: Yeah. So I think when I got into climbing, I, I honestly didn't even have a clue what the seven summits were, which I'm guessing is the, you know, the majority of people in the audience and everyone. Um, But yeah, I was just talking to a friend after I got into climbing and he mentioned it. And I did some research and just realized that not many people had climbed the highest peak on the seven continents. And it just sounds like an amazing journey. You know, I love to travel. I love to experience different cultures. And, you know, I love climbing. So it's just a great blend of everything. So I just, you know, just decided to do that and set a goal. and you know, to look at, you know, as far as timelines and training and everything, just how I could make it work over the next, you know, seven plus years.
2: Yeah, it's a pretty serious endeavor. So how did you start out? Was it, you know, Kilimanjaro first or I, I assume you ramped up as you went. You obviously didn't uh, catch Everest the, the first time out.
1: No, but I, so since I'd been climbing here in the in Washington State in the Cascades, you know, training on Mount Rainier, uh, my first of the seven summits was actually Denali up in Alaska. And I, I did that guided and I didn't summit. We got within a thousand feet and just weather was really bad. So my first experience was actually, I don't know, you can call it a failure, but we all survived. So I guess it's success,
2: <laughs> right.
1: but you know, it it is tough because it's like when you have this huge endeavor and then it's like, Whoa, I didn't even stand on top of the first one I attempted. Um, you know where do we go from here and i think that's just it's true in life you know you run into walls you run into obstacles and you kind of have to regroup figure out you know what the priorities are if things are still important and just realize that you know it's it's not a huge deal in most cases you take a step back and continue you know then moving forward after you get some perspective and and honestly i've i've climbed all of the seven summits stood on top of six of them i've been on denali three times and still have not summited so that's the only one that's not working out for me so much but you know every every time i come back it's a good day to live and there's reasons for turning around and as far as i know the mountain's still there so i think think one thing i've learned in life you know through this is that it's it's okay to to be you know fulfilled and it's okay to 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 not stand on top of the summit to not reach those goals because the experience along the way is you know irreplaceable and you know I have stood on top of Everest and all the other peaks so I don't feel like I'm lacking in any way
2: <laughs> yeah I'm sure well you have to keep that mindset and look at it that way you're better off walking off the peak than uh, never coming back off again so it's all, mm-hmm. like you said it's always going to be there it's not going anywhere so does that kind of does that get to you at all though I mean I got to think that you know three attempts and still not having gotten up there, you just, I assume you're, you're kind of holding that out saying eventually I'm going to get up there. Or do you think that you've, you've made your attempts and you're done with that one now?
1: Uh, Well, yeah, every time I come back, I say I'm never doing it again. And just like any extreme athlete, you know, you have short term memory and you start looking at the pictures and the memories and everything else. And you forget about the misery, the the suffering that occurs. Um, So yeah, I never say never. But, you know, my kids are 10 and almost 13 and, you know, they're, 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 my son loves, he's 10 and he loves climbing with me and uh, just doing different adventures. So um I always say there's, there's no shortage of adventures on this earth. And what I don't want to get into is just this, you know, cyclical, you know, thrashing of Denali, <laughs> like I just got to get back type of thing, because I think that ends up affecting more in your life negatively. Um, but if the opportunity exists and I can get the right people to climb, because uh, that's always important, just having a strong team. Um, it's an amazing mountain and it's always out there. And I do like to accomplish my goals. That's why I say never say never. But um, at this point, you know, I don't have like a huge yearning to go back. But it's funny because um, my climbing Sherpa that I climbed with on Everest reached out and actually wants to climb it. So I thought that would be a cool thing to kind of reunite and climb it together. So. Oh, he wants
2: to climb Denali. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Wow. That's cool.
2: Yeah. So you guys really build a bond with, uh, with your Sherpas out there. I mean, you kind of, you know, from us, the bystanders, you know, down here looking up at the, at the Everest and you guys climbing it, you know, I just think, well, you know, it's a business for these guys. They're just, they're going up and they're, they're guiding you or, or helping you up, uh, the ascent. But you guys build more of a, a bond from the sounds of it with these guys than we, when we even realize.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Sherpa are just, just amazing, amazing people. And, and I, I can't speak for, for every climber, or every situation, but for me, since I was independent, um, you know, I didn't go with a, a guided group. I had some Sherpa support down lower, like the porters that, you know, help, help carry stuff in the 38 miles on foot to base camp. And then some helping, you know, up on the mountain, you know, just bringing different supplies and food up to, to different areas. But Pasong was a climbing Sherpa that I was just basically paired with. We just climbed together the whole time. And yeah, we, we email often, you know, he's on Facebook and uh, just a, an amazing person. You just, I mean, when you're having this experience, you know, in the death zone with someone else you know, it's hard not to just become a lifelong friend. Yeah, I'm sure.
2: So is it common for the, these guys, the Sherpas to get out around the the world and be able to climb other peaks themselves? Or, I mean, I, I, being a little naive about, about mountaineering and, you know, Everest and the, and the highest peaks, I would sit here and assume, well, they pretty much are, are stuck there climbing, helping people climb Everest, but maybe not. Is that normal for them to be able to get out and do it in other places?
1: Uh, I think it's, it depends on the individual. I mean, there's there's some in older school Sherpa that just they kind of do the trekking deal. They're not even climbing Everest. There's so many peaks over there in the Himalaya, in Tibet, and in different areas that they're that they're you know just going in trekking to these different locations and maybe some of the smaller peaks, which are still huge in comparison to, to other peaks around the world. Um, but yeah, some definitely get out. You know, and it's it's a small community. Like when I was down in Antarctica, you know, I ran into. A uh, Sherpa down there. There was one in Antarctica. It was cool. So we we climbed down the mountain together, and <laughs> you know, just different mountains like on Denali, saw another one on Rainier, and so yeah, like Basong, the one that I was uh, partnered with, he's he's definitely trying to get out and explore the world, which is great, and he's you know getting his education and everything. So yeah, I think it's it's a blend, just like any, anywhere else. Mm.
0: It's not always possible to take a French press or coffee maker out in the woods with you. But thankfully now you don't have to because there is a great option in CS instant coffee. They make 100% Arabica instant coffee in compostable packaging. It's perfect for the outdoors or whenever you don't have the time to make a fresh pot. And right now you can save 50% on your first order by going to csinstant.coffee and using the code adventure at checkout. One of my new favorite pieces of gear is actually my wallet and that's because it's been inspired by simplicity by Rome products. It's a minimalist style wallet, holds my cash, my cards, holds it really tightly because it's elastic and it's probably eliminated my wallet size down by 60 to 70%. They offer a variety of designs from artistic to patterns and they're machine washable if they get dirty. Come with a little carabiner so you can clip it to things like your keys or your lanyard. And they also offer a complete line of silicone rings with a variety of styles and colors. So if you're tired of carrying around a big, bulky wallet, go to where do you roam r o a m dot com and use the code podcast with a capital P at checkout for twenty percent off.
2: All right, so let's talk about Everest itself. Um, this is where the where the story took place. So, um, why don't you just start off from the beginning? Um, you had gone and climbed some of the peaks of the Seven Summits, and eventually made your way to Everest. So, tell us a story about you know getting there and heading up, and and all the ev- the events that occurred after that.
1: Okay, yeah. So it was in April two thousand eleven. So it's a two month expedition you know, flew over. Um, you know, I had to say goodbye to my family for a two month expedition, which is never easy. You know, it's honestly the hardest part. The, the climb itself is super difficult not to downplay that, but just, you know, you with climbing in, even when I was in the military, it's like physically most people can build up and get through anything. It's the mental aspect. So on Everest, it was, it was no different, you know, just the the mental and emotional. So, Got beyond that and, you know, took care of everything back home and, you know, had a communication plan in place, but got over to Kathmandu, did the little tour and then flew into Lukla, which is the shortest and uh, most dangerous airport in the world. It's just on the side of a mountain. And then from there, it's 38 miles on foot. So just, you know, a week and a half hiking into base camp and base camps at 17,500 feet. So you're acclimating just to get to to base camp. And then the first thing I did is, you know, pretty much dropped our gear a day later, hiked, uh, I think it was like 20 miles out to uh, Island Peak, which is a 20,000-foot peak, and climbed that to acclimate. So basically, acclimation is to help your body adapt at the higher altitudes. Because on Mount Everest at 29,035 feet, you know, it's the same altitude that major jet airliners fly at. So if you were to pluck your body from where you or I are at right now, put you on the summit, you would pass out and die. You just can't survive up there. There's only a third of the air. So the acclimatization process actually forces you to you know, get up in the higher altitudes and you come back down. So it's, we basically call it rotations. You go up, touch a camp, come back down, rest for a few days, and your body will produce red blood cells, which carry more oxygen. So you just continue just going up and down the mountain multiple times. think like You climb the mountain like five times before it's all over. And after about a month, you're in position to actually make a summit attempt. So as high as you'll go is Camp 3, which is um, basically up Lhotse Face. Lhotse is the fourth highest mountain in the world. So you basically climb up that and then cut over to get to the highest camp in the world on Everest. And, you know, it's it's a long process. Uh, but when you're there and you're acclimated, it's, it's amazing. It's just amazing to see how the body responds and how you can just survive in those altitudes. So, so just kind of jumping a, a month into it when I was fully acclimated, you know, I went all the way back down to, um, base camp and waited for a weather window, you know, and it was a few days and basically you need a five day weather window, which on Everest, there's only a couple different days that you can actually summit because it's so high up in the jet stream, um, that it kind of creates its own weather pattern. And, um, you know, got that wet, got the window. So started heading up the mountain, you know, bypassed camp one, went through the Kumbu icefall. That's where the, the huge, uh, building size blocks of ice are and all the ladders. Same area where, you know, 16 Sherpa were killed a few years back on a, right. a massive, um, piece of ice calved off and crushed them all, um, got up to camp two. And then, you know, the next day headed up to, actually I I rested one day there. And then the next day headed up to camp three. And from there it was just myself and Pasang and early in the morning, you know, we took off and we were heading up Lhotse Face, which is just a straight up, just imagine miles of just straight up a wall of ice you know, and there's fixed lines. So there's ropes where I have my whole, all my gear on, crampons, spikes on my boots, um, harness with multiple devices that are attached to that rope, which is attached to anchor points that Sherpa and guides and people will, will attach to um, the mountain so that you don't have to be like rope to another person. You're basically roped to the mountain. So if you fall, you only fall to the next anchor. So I'm hiking up the, um, from, Camp three, you know, trying to get up to the high camp and then would go for the summit later. And about a thousand feet above camp three, I stopped to get some water and I had a supplemental oxygen mask on. And so basically a mask, which has a strap that goes over the forehead and then goggles in order to drink, I have to take all that gear off. So I'm sitting, just imagine the side of a wall and I'm anchored off to that. And I take my goggles off, put it around my arm, and then take my mask off, and my foot slipped out. And I went to reach for the rope that I was attached to. It was just a natural reaction, and my goggles actually slid off my arm and slid down the mountain. And I figured they were gone, and, you know, it's it's so bright up there. And it's just really, really dangerous to not have your eyes protected and... I, you know, I figured if I didn't have my goggles, I was I was pretty much done. You know, I had uh, sunglasses, but with the oxygen mask, it, you can't really wear glasses because it pushes your, your, your glasses out too far and you'd get snow blind underneath. But some Sherpa down below, about 500 feet below were waving at me. They, they actually said, you know, they're letting me know, they're gesturing that they got my goggles.
2: <laughs> wow. <Yeah. laughs> what are the odds?
1: was just a, a miracle in itself so i came off oxygen i anchored my my pack and everything to the the line right there the anchor and i rappelled down but when i got to them they were cracked. and goggles have two lenses an internal and external the internal is cracked. so you know without really thinking too much about it i put them on and started climbing back up and be Goggles will freeze and fog and freeze anyways, just because the contrast of your hot breath and the cold outside. Well, mine were freezing between layers, so I ended up wearing them. Got back to my pack, made it up to high camp, and just could barely see getting up there. And it was really windy. There was seventy mile an hour gusts hitting us. Uh, most people didn't summit that day. Uh, a couple people did, but in fact, a Japanese climber actually died that day on the summit near the summit. So I ended up, you know, in the early afternoon getting to high camp and Pasong was already there. He's in the tent. I showed him my goggles, you know, they're cracked. And I ended up just ripping that internal lens out, you know, not realizing at the time that that would cut their effectiveness in half. So we we laid there in the tent, you know, the winds were whipping and, you know, we made some radio calls down to see how the weather was going to be. If we can make a summit attempt, because we're now at 26,000 feet, we're in the death zone. And they call it that because there's only a third of the air. You know, there's just, you just cannot survive long up there. Like if you cut your finger, it won't heal. It's just, it's an insane place. Just no, not many places, you know, only 14 other places like it uh, on this earth. And um, the weather was looking good. You know, it was going to be calm through the night. And then the next day, like 50 mile an hour gusts were going to come. But by that time, we should have been able to get to the summit and down. So about eight, nine o'clock that night, we, we got all prepared and we, we started heading out. And we, we made our way across the ice bulge, like a quarter mile ice bulge, and, and then started heading up, up to the top. And, um, Pasang started like kind of inching away. He was just slowing down. And, you know, I continued moving. I got to the halfway point. It's called the balcony at 27,500 feet. And I waited for about an hour a song. And, you know, he finally showed up and he wasn't feeling good. In fact, he threw up and, you know, I figured, okay, then we're probably going to head back. And he assured me he was fine. He wanted to continue. So we continued and not far from there, about 28,000 feet. Um, he finally said he was done and, you know, strong guy. He already had a couple summits under his belt. Um, you know, but he's just, it's, it's Everest. It's the death zone. And, you know, you live and die based on decisions. So we are kind of at that point. He's going to go back. He actually said he was going to wait at the balcony. And, you know, I'm I'm weighing out things like, you know, how am I feeling? I'm strong. How's the weather? Weather was good. Uh, but most importantly, you know, how was Pasong? And he, again, assured me he was fine. He was going to wait right there and gave me an extra oxygen bottle, buried it right in the snow right there. And, you know, said, go to the top and I'll meet you back at the balcony. And he ended up going all the way back down to high camp. You know, I wouldn't know that till later. And that's fine. I mean, again, it's in the death zone. You got to do what you do to survive. So I continued up and, you know, climbed up the the South Rock Step, which is a, a rock climb, you know, above 28,000 feet. So a lot of effort, uh, but got to the top of that. And that's when the sun was rising. And, you know, just I'm hanging, hanging out at like 28,000 feet. It was such an amazing moment. I got video of. The sun basically rising behind Everest, casting this perfect pyramid shadow down over the Himalayas. It's just one of those moments that just never, ever forget. And, you know, continued up, got to the south summit, went across the Cornice Traverse, which is an area which is um, a two-mile drop on each side of you, two miles straight down. You know, it's like two two feet wide. But on the right side, it's two miles straight into Tibet. And on the left, two miles straight down into Nepal. So it's a pretty unforgiving area. Got to Hillary Step, which is the last major obstacle. You know, it's a 40 foot rock climb. I um, just kind of bounced over that. And then I could see the true summit and just those last moments, just taking those steps towards a summit is just, it's so much to, to process in the moment because you, you worked so hard to get there and then to finally be there and just to have that realization you know, that you are on the top of the world and the only person there completely alone. So I, you know, just took it all in, took some pictures, um, took the highest selfie in the world and then made a radio call down and just let everyone know that I was there and they're, you know, cheering. And a guy that was down at camp three, moving to the high camp that day, you know, got on and congratulated me and, you know, basically said, be careful on the way down. And, you know, actually said, you and Pasong be careful. And that was my first indication that no one realized I was alone. So I let him know, like, well, Pasong went down like an hour ago. And he's like, Oh, you're alone. He's like, well, you know, be careful. Like, okay. So I sat down, you know, got a snag, got some water and, um, you know, you spend a month or so, getting to that point, and you can spend less than an hour taking it all in. And I gathered all my stuff and started moving down. And about 10, 15 feet into it, everything just went completely white. And at that moment, I just, I dropped to my knees and grabbed the rope that I was attached to and just realized what had happened. I, you know, I went snow blind. And with snow blindness, like when you, when it happens, it's just, it happens and everything is just bright, white, and very painful. Like if you broke chips, like potato chips in your eyelids, you know, it's just scratching in there and it's, it's so bright. It'd be like if you put a light bulb within an inch of your face, you know, you can't see anything. You could put your finger in front of that light bulb and you'd know something moved, but you just cannot see anything. Wow. And, you know, without overthinking it, without panicking, You know, in the military, they—that's one thing they drilled into the job that we had—is you panic, you die. And I think a lot of that just came back. I just—I stood up and just started moving, just slowly, one step in front of the other, just very deliberate steps, very slowly, just holding onto the rope so tight. And you know, using my other senses, but really trying to use my eyes. I'm not normally blind, and they just weren't working, and it was very frustrating and it was very painful. I just kept moving and I don't know, I just, I felt this presence around me the whole time. Like I never felt alone, Um, but I didn't really think too much about it. You know, I just, I just, I don't know. I just never felt alone and I just, you know, kept moving and I would be so thirsty. I would just have to stop and find my water, drink my water and then put it back. And it's just this long process and, you know, made it to the top of Hillary step, basically just kind of pendulum down that thing and, you know, just just so lucky I didn't, like, break a leg or anything coming down. I just kind of slid down very ungracefully, got across that, that um, Cornice Traverse, the two-mile drop on each side area. Winds were kicking up. You know, I could hear them. They would come up over the ridge, and I would just hunker down and let it pass over me. And then I'd get up, take another step, and it was just this long process. Um, got to the south summit and uh lost a cramp on there thing popped off and i took a a major fall down that where the the rope actually shock loaded and honestly the whole whole way down that was the most scary part of it where i was just falling uncontrollably just could not see anything and then that rope rope just shock loaded my mask was ripped from my face my heart was just racing out of my chest and you know i righted myself grabbed my oxygen took some deep breaths and, and saw this blurry object, you know, a little bit above me where I'd fallen and I remember just crawling up to it and it, to it. And it was my cramp on. It's like miracle number two at this point. <laughs> <Holy cow. laughs> I count my miracles and I remember just reaching that and just, you know, cutting out a little shelf and getting it back on and just cinching down both of them. And I, I stepped to my right, which would be back towards the rock. Um, the South Rock step to try to come down the rock instead of the snow and, and the, the earth just kind of came out from under me, just a slab avalanche. It was getting warmer out. And I just remember I, I was falling and I remember that initial just falling feeling and I grabbed the rope so fast and so tight. It burned a, a line right through my glove. And I remember that pain I felt on my, my palm, but just my heart is just racing again and just like holding on to that rope and just calming myself down again. So I got over to the South Rock Step and, you know, slid down, got to the snowy area, um, pretty close to where Pasong had left. I remember being happy to be at that place because it was, you know, snow just making my way back to the balcony and then down to the the South Coast, the high, high camp. And I almost walked right past the oxygen bottle because it's like this bright orange, you know, fiery glow. And I remember just laying down next to it and fumbling with my regulator and getting it on there, getting it off of my bottle and onto that one. But no air was coming out of it. And I knew that mine wasn't going to last much longer. And I tried for a little bit, but it just wouldn't work. And I don't know why, but I put that extra 15 pounds, that other bottle in my pack, you know, reattached mine and put the other one in my pack and just started moving. You know, it's the death zone. So you just kind of like you know, not thinking clearly. And at this point I'd been climbing for over 30 hours from the day prior to this point, got to the balcony and, you know, Pasong wasn't there. And I just assumed he must've went down and, you know, got a snack and just kind of got my gear ready to to head down that last, you know, half, halfway to, to get to the high camp. And, about twenty yards into it, my mask just starts sucking into my face, and I remember just dropping to my knees and just ripping my mask off and just trying to breathe the thin air and you know, I just at that moment i just I just gave up, you know, just surrender just just prayed, just said, "God, I can't do this alone, please help me and you know almost immediately, i just i felt this energy come over my body, and you know I just felt lifted to my feet and the first thing I did was try that other bottle. I grabbed my regulator and it was just fumbling. And as soon as I attached it, there was a positive flow. And I remember just taking like five deep breaths of air and it just, it burned. It was like fire entering my, my veins and my body, but it gave me life. And without overthinking it, you know, I just, I placed everything, my bottle and everything back in the pack and just, you know, as fast and safe as I could just started going down the mountain, you know, it's like 20 pitches of rappelling. And, you know, eventually, you know, this would have been, it should have taken me three hours to get to high camp. This would have been about seven hours later. You know, people down below thought the worst had happened. And I come stumbling in and, you know, I'm about a quarter mile from where the tents are. And out of nowhere, I just, a pasong hugs me. He's like, Brian, you alive. And at that moment, I knew, I was alive and never saw him coming. He just hugs me and then we, we turn and he, you know, he helps get me back to camp. And, you know, I collapsed in the tent and I basically fell asleep for 15 hours. My eyes were glued shut and it was even more painful the next day. And, um, but I had Pasong and, you know, we still had to get down. We're still to get down Lotse face, get down to camp too. And the next day. Get through the Kumbu Icefall, across the ladders, and get to base camp, and then you know two days to get the thirty-eight miles out to Lukla to fly to Kathmandu and back home.
2: Wow! So you actually hiked down, back out. It's you didn't get down to to camp and fly out at that point. You still yeah. had a lot of a lot of hiking to do.
1: Yeah, yeah. My eyesight didn't come back for about a month and a half. So my right eye was coming back a few days later, but my left was. Completely blurry and you know slowly coming back, but wasn't fully back for about a month and a half.
2: Wow, that's incredible. So Pasang probably just thought the worst that you had died on the the mountain. He was probably, I'm sure he yeah. was pretty torn up the fact that he had to go back down and left you up there, huh?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, the, and that's something he said. He's like, "I'm so sorry, I leave you," and that that surprised me because you know he he's such a a great guy. But it was, you know, it's a discussion that we had and, you know, you make those decisions on a mountain. And at the time, you know, it made sense. He was going to wait right there. I, I felt good. And, you know, we had that conversation, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, it would be horrible, you know, if, you know, if something happened to him or anything. So you, you know, you, you go through life and you make these decisions and fortunately sometimes they work out. And yeah, we're definitely closer. Because of it, but yeah, it was, it was definitely nice to, to have him there and to, you know, when he just hugged me out of nowhere, it's like, wow.
2: <laughs> I'm sure. Well, it's amazing. We can take something like a pair of goggles, uh, for granted like that. Um, you, you just don't think much about it. You just think, I'm going to have my goggles and you know, it's not like you're carrying f- extra sets of everything with you. You can't do that, obviously. So right. something as simple as a pair of goggles can cause all this turmoil.
1: Yeah, and it's it's interesting because you know I, I I speak a lot and do media and everything else, so I always get the the common questions and, and it's true. I mean, you you go to any guiding company, go to their equipment list. You know, it's one pair of goggles, and typically I don't even wear goggles. I wear sunglasses. They wrap around better. They're more comfortable. Um, I I because of my experience, I do bring extra goggles. <laughs> I'm sure on <to laughs> certain, but. The reasoning is it's a little different because even in my situation, I don't know if I would have been swapping out goggles necessarily. I may not have repelled down to get the others, you know, I would have had a separate um, set, but, you know, I didn't realize that, you know, they were by ripping the internal lens that it would have caused that. And, you know, just coming, being off, you know, exposing, especially I have blue eyes, so I'm more susceptible to snow blindness, you know, on Everest, every bit adds up. So any time that I was, you know, taking my goggles or glasses off, you know, it was all adding up. So it was just kinda like the perfect storm. Um when I was in Antarctica later that year and on Denali the next couple of times, I will bring extra goggles, but a lot of times it's because when one freezes, I'll I'll swap it out and use the other pair. You know, so I can warm one pair while the other's freezing. So it's kind of for a different reason.
2: Right.
1: right. But definitely I'm uh I'm very much aware of <laughs> snow blindness, so I'm I'm very keen to it. And when I bring people up, even on Rainier, I brought some former Navy guys up on a little expedition this summer. You know, I'm like, I don't know. Now I'm like the grandpa, you know, like, Hey, you better watch your eyes (laughs) because put your (laughs) glasses on.
2: (laughs) So did you know is snow blindness when it happened? Were you trained, uh, to recognize that?
1: Uh, yeah, I'm aware of things that can happen on the mountain. In fact, when I was heading up to high camp earlier, the, you know, the day prior, they, there was a guy that was snowblind that was being helped down the mountain. So it's kind of ironic, you know, it's kind of, I was looking at him going, Oh man, that's horrible. I'd hate to be that guy. And then, you know, hours later I was that guy. So it's definitely aware. Um, but with snow blindness, I mean, there's, there was no reversing it. Usually it takes on average 24 hours to get over it. You know, mine was just very extreme.
2: Yeah. And that's the crazy thing. When I first heard about your story, I assumed it was cerebral edema, you know, swelling of the brain, which can cause blindness. So you just think mm-hmm. altitude, lack of oxygen, um, that that's, that can be a common problem. So when I found out it was snow blindness and that snow blindness, yours lasted, what, a month and a half? Um, man, that's, that's kind of worse in a way because it's, it's, you know, it lasts so long, at least with, uh, as long as, you know, you don't pass out or die from from the edema, you can actually back down off the mountain some and, and get mm-hmm. down to a lower altitude and have it reverse the effects. But you had to deal with this uh lack of vision for a month and a half.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I definitely don't recommend it.
2: <laughs> I can't imagine. So you hike down, you finally fly out. Um, Did you go straight back to to Washington at that point, I assume, and and obviously yeah. seek medical treatment and meet up with your wife?
1: Yeah, man, I was, I was so beat up looking. I mean, I lost 20 pounds. I had two black eyes, couldn't see anything and I'm flying home alone. So I had to fly to Bang- Bangkok, you know, get a hotel and I'm stumbling around, you know, Bangkok, just bumping into people and it was a mess. But yeah, the next day I flew to Taiwan and then to Seattle and the plane was delayed so I didn't get to see my kids they were in bed and my wife was at the airport and uh yeah so uh, pretty much the next well the next day I think Fox News was in my house and you know I was had bright lights and cameras and everything else going on so like that sucked but
2: the last thing you want is bright lights in your face (laughs)
1: oh my goodness yeah it's like this you know I was yeah I was on stage like at my church and everything like telling my story but Um, yeah, but then I went to the doctor and, you know, they just said it wouldn't be permanent and don't drive. And, you know, it's just normal stuff. It just took time.
2: It had to be a sweet reunion with your wife at that point for the, for the both of you. I mean, you have all this occur on, on Everest and, you know, not the, not the worst that could happen, but still pretty bad. It's gotta be a scary moment and a sweet reunion.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, just a a survival moment for sure. puts things in perspective and then to just to see the kids too. And, you know, it's when I, when I climb, you know, I'm, I, I take calculated risks and, you know, I haven't had any situations that have been, you know, bad. I mean, a lot of people die on mountains and, you know, I've, I've had a lot of success and, you know, I think try to be smart and, you know, basically working on avoidance, avalanche avoidance, everything else, you know, if it's your time, it's your time, but this is definitely A scenario that you know gets you thinking and you know obviously there's the mass majority of people on this earth would never climb everest or even climb in general so they're not going to understand they're just going to see the you know one perspective of it but Mm -hmm. for those that are closer to these type of um extreme adventures you know they get it and they they understand and you know when you when you do train and you are there and you know you are wired a certain way that you know you are good at doing these type of things and you try to avoid, you know, going snow blind or anything else, but stuff happens and it did. And fortunately I was here to tell and tell the story and to, you know, now cherish those moments with the family that much more and just be a better person because of it and help others.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's a gift in and of itself. Well adventures don't have to be um dangerous. You know, they can be safe. You can be trained and you can be uh, safe about it. And yeah, I I agree. I think a lot of people don't understand that. They just, they see the word adventure as extreme sport, taking a risk Mm -hmm. with your life, you know, and it's not necessarily the case. Obviously you're taking more risk, but, but you've, uh, you've had a lot of training in your life to, to learn how to deal with it too and make smart decisions for sure. Yep. All right. So you wrote a book about this. That's how I found you. So the book is called Blind Descent, uh, Surviving Alone and Blind on Mount Everest. Tell me a little bit about the, the book and where people can find it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So when I got back, I connected with uh, a literary agent, uh, working title agencies in, um, Tennessee near the Nashville area. And yep, we, they connected me with Tyndale House publishing and then went through the process of writing a book. I actually had most of it because climbing magazine was, um, doing a blog on me, my entire journey. So I was just able to kind of transform that into a book. And then the editors turned it into, you know, better than a fifth grader writing and um so I was I was happy with um how that turned out. But yeah, it's called uh Blind Descent. It's on Amazon or, you know, anywhere you can buy books. There's uh, I just released an audio version of it this year as well. But it's it's on all flavors of books that you can get. Hard, soft, e ebooks, Kindles, um audio and and then I'm I'm on all again, all flavors of social media as well. Okay, probably do more tweeting than anything, but um I try to you know, always capture all my the pictures and adventures that I take and you know, just keep bring people along for the journey cuz most people would would never step foot on some of the places that I'm fortunate to go to.
2: Yeah, it definitely allows people to uh, live vicariously. I was looking at your Instagram uh, account, and you have some uh, amazing footage uh, and photos in there. if people want to go check out brian's instagram it's uh at brian C. Dickinson. um in fact facebook twitter instagram they're all under that same handle, so check him out there um what I saw was video clips from the the film shoot that you're doing up in Canada, so are you allowed to tell us a little bit about why you're up there
1: uh yeah, yeah, so I will be a feature and it's a ten 10- 10 disc um series it's actually a marriage series that kingdom work Studios is putting out um it should be a in spring of 2017 so mine will be a feature of one of the dvds and it's they're uh using my experience to to help marriages apparently so <laughs> it should <laughs>
2: are you getting <laughs> mad at your husband send him to everest <laughs> <laughs>
1: something yeah it'll be interesting no they've, they've definitely uh produced some quality stuff so um uh the the shoot itself was was very uh it was an experience i mean we we had to helicopter up to the Waddington range there and uh basically just lived up in the mountains and just had all the film equipment the producer and director and just uh basically anchoring them down to keep them safe while I was you know reenacting a lot of you know what I went through it was it's actually very emotional to go just back like you know mentally to that place and have to do it and then do multiple takes on it. So it's it should uh should turn out pretty good. I'm you know excited to see how it turns out. Um but yeah, I'll I'll definitely be posting more through social media as as I learn more about it.
2: Yeah, very cool. Yeah, I imagine uh people can follow you and find out when that gets released as well. So well i'm uh I can't wait to read the book. I'm definitely going to pick it up it's uh I'm fascinated with your story and uh, obviously happy that you you came back to us to be able to tell it. It was just an amazing recount of an amazing journey that you had. so thank you very much for spending the time and and telling our listeners about it and hopefully they'll go out and follow you and check out the book as well.
1: yeah, I appreciate you having me on the show. Yeah,
2: my pleasure. And we will put all the links up under the show notes uh, to your website and to the book. In fact, we have a, a ASP bookshelf that we use uh, to put all of our authors' books in there. So if you guys want to go find Brian's book, so check out our ASP bookshelf and you can find it in there. And I think that'll do it, Brian. Thanks so much for joining me.
1: All right. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it.
2: All right. Have a good evening. Thanks.
0: First of all,